With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good people from around the world who want to make a difference. and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. The only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. It was less than two weeks before Thanksgiving in 2009 when George Powell III walked into a Bell County courtroom to fight for his freedom. After spending months in the county jail awaiting trial, November 17th was the day that George Powell was going to get to prove his innocence. He walked into the courtroom with confidence. After all, how could the state possibly convict him for a crime that he knew that he didn't commit? When the trial ended and the jury returned their verdict, George Powell was left with the same question that you were left with last week. How in the hell could seven witnesses describe the robber as being under 5 foot 8 and yet still 6 foot 3 George Powell get convicted of the robbery? It's that very question that is going to be the focus of today's episode of Truth and Justice. The state's case against George Powell consisted of four elements. Each of these elements were dependent upon the other. There was no physical evidence found on the crime scene at 7-Eleven linking George Powell to the robbery, or any of the robberies for that matter. There were no fingerprints from George Powell, there was no hair, there was no DNA. There were simply seven witnesses describing a short man, 5'6 to 5'8, robbing the store with a chrome gun and fleeing on foot. In order to convict George Powell of this offense, the state had to build a case from the ground up. And with the help of Colleen Police Detective Carl Ortiz, that's exactly what they did. I actually had the opportunity to meet and speak with George Powell over the phone this week. Typically, when we work on these cases, I've been speaking to the person who was wrongfully convicted for months before we ever begin broadcasting the case. But the George Powell case is very different. As you know, it was brought to us by the Innocence Project of Texas, and time is of the essence. Because right now, as we speak, George is in the middle of a continuance for his own post-conviction relief hearing, where his lawyers with the Innocence Project of Texas are fighting for his actual innocence. As I spoke with George yesterday, we went through, point by point, the state's four elements of their case against him at trial. So throughout the course of this episode, the voice that you're going to hear discussing what happened is George himself. 
He was calling from the Bell County Jail, where he's waiting in limbo for the next stage of his PCR hearing. Throughout today's episode, we're going to break down in detail the four elements of the state's case. As a quick summary, the process went something like this. The surveillance video of the robbery at the 7-Eleven was broadcast on TV offering a Crime Stoppers reward for anyone with any information leading to the arrest or indictment of the person in the video. About four hours later, a woman named Elsie Schultz called the Crime Stoppers line and identified George Powell as the suspect. After that, George Powell's photo was put into a photo lineup and showed to several of the cashiers. He was identified by Melissa Keene in the 7-Eleven robbery. Then the state used a supposed photogrammetry expert to tie their case into a neat little bow, and then they put some icing on top of the cake with a jailhouse snitch. We're going to get into all of that after a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Mod Cloth. Mod Cloth is your go-to spot for fashion as unique as you. They believe that fashion is for every body size and shape. That's why their exclusive line of apparel is offered in a full-size range, from extra extra small to 4XL. Mod Cloth is the go-to source for unique women's fashion. They specialize in a broad range of styles from quirky statement prints, vibrant colors, retro dresses, classic silhouettes, and cool contemporary clothing. You can even get free sizing and fit and styling help from their team of mod stylists. Without any effort, transition between seasons with summer styles that stay perfectly preserved for fall. Go to modcloth.com, that's M-O-D-C-L-O-T-H, modcloth.com, and enter promo code TRUTH at checkout to get 30% off of your order of $100 or more. That's modcloth.com, and use my promo code TRUTH at checkout for 30% off of your order of $100 or more. Make every day extraordinary at ModCloth. What you're going to notice as we go through the state's case against George Powell is that it sounds strikingly similar to just about every other wrongful conviction we've ever talked about on this show. In my studies of wrongful convictions over the last three years, what I've found are there are certain patterns. There's always a jailhouse snitch, there's always changing testimony, and there's just about always a Crime Stoppers tip. One of the first questions that I had for George when I had him on the phone was how did the police get directed towards him to begin with? They used the suggestive methods to get these individuals to pick my picture out of a photo lineup because it was the same detective that that administered each photo lineup to each one of the victims. And that's the basis. And the Crime Stoppers call was just convenient for them. And who? what was the name of the woman that made the Crime Stoppers call? Her name was Elsie Schultz. Okay. And I think I found somewhere, because she called, she said that she saw the video on the news and recognized it as being you. Is that right? Yeah. Elsie Schultz was a woman who worked part-time at the Lone Star Inn. The Lone Star Inn was the motel where George had been staying for nearly a year after he had moved to Texas from the Carolinas. There's one thing about George that most of you probably aren't aware of. Back in 2008... He considered his profession to be a recording artist. George would write and record music, burn it onto CDs, and spent every day going from location to location around town selling his CDs. During this time, he was staying at that Lone Star Inn where Elsie Schultz happened to work. Elsie testified at trial that while she was watching the morning news, she saw the video of the robbery at the 7-Eleven. 
and she saw that there was a reward being offered for anyone with any information leading to the arrest or the indictment of the man in the video. At trial, she testified that she knew immediately who the man in the video was. It was a gentleman that she referred to as, quote, GQ. Even at trial, she testified that she still didn't know his name. He had been living at the motel for the four months that she had been working there, and she said that she saw him nearly every day. Now, keep in mind, this isn't an apartment building, it's a hotel, which means that he would come in almost daily to pay his rent. She testified that she had never been into his room. In fact, he didn't want anyone in his room cleaning. He took care of that himself. He only came to the office occasionally to trade out towels. Yet still, Elsie told the people on the Crime Stoppers line, then the police, and then later at trial, that she was 100% certain that the man in the video was in fact GQ, who we know as George Powell. Now, what the jury heard was an extremely confident person. I've read the trial transcripts, and the prosecution asked Elsie if she could point out the person that she was referring to as GQ. She pointed right at George Powell. She was asked by both the prosecution and the defense in cross-examination if she was certain. She repeatedly stated that she is 100% sure that it was George Powell in that video. At the end of the day, the jury obviously believed Ms. Schultz. But I, on the other hand, have a couple of issues with her testimony. The first problem that I have is this. I have reviewed that footage probably close to 50 to 60 times on my computer where I can freeze frame it, slow it down, speed it up, zoom it in. I have two different angles. What I know from all of my review of that videotape is that not from any angle, any place, any freeze frame, do you ever get a good look at the suspect's face. Not once. And again, that's with me having the ability to stop the tape, back it up, fast forward, rewind, pause, and zoom. I've compared the man's image on those videos with George Powell. To be honest, other than the huge height difference, there's no way to tell one way or the other because you just cannot see the man's face. He's wearing a baseball cap with the sides curled down and a very large pair of black sunglasses. And the camera angle is from above. So at best, you can see the bottom half of his right cheek and his chin and maybe some of his lips in a blurry, grainy image. And when Elsie Schultz identified him, she saw that image one time in a very short clip on TV. She testified that she saw it on the morning news and she called Crime Stoppers about four hours later. She also testified that she saw it again in the evening news, but she had already called by then. So that means she saw it one time. No stopping, no pausing, no freeze framing, no rewinding. She saw it go across the news once, an image, a blurry image, where you never get a good look at the man's face at all. And from that image, she was certain that it had to be George Powell. Elsie's Crime Stoppers tip was the first real lead that Detective Ortiz had in this case. After receiving the lead, he of course didn't know who GQ was, but Elsie Schultz had given an exact address and room number for George Powell, as well as point out the car that he was driving. At this point in the investigation, Ortiz had three suspects. 
One was, of course, George Powell. The second suspect I'm not going to name because he was immediately eliminated once it was discovered that he was actually in the county jail during two of the robberies. So he can absolutely be ruled out. The other suspect was a man named Christopher Dwight Ramey. So right now at this point, Detective Ortiz has two viable suspects, Ramey and George Powell. From there, he creates a photo lineup to go back to all the convenience stores to show to the cashiers to see if anyone can identify any of these suspects. The problem is the only other viable suspect, Christopher Ramey, wasn't included in the photo he lineup. Said that he eliminated sus- uh, one suspect because of his ears poked out a little bit too much, versus me being six foot three and the victim to being described or the suspect being described as five foot six to five foot nine. Or, yeah, I mean ears and height. He's choosing the ears over height. You're nine inches taller than the suspect, and they wrote this other guy off because of his ears? Right. Now, when George told me this, I have to admit, I wasn't sure I believed him. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this is the first time I've met George, the first time I've spoken with him. I don't know what kind of guy he is. I don't know if I can trust him. And as a general rule, I don't trust anyone about anything unless I can back it up with documentation. But I took George's word for it, and then I went right into the trial transcripts. And sure enough, in Carl Ortiz's testimony, I found the following. From the transcripts, quote, Question. Okay, who else did you have tips on a possible suspect for the 7-Eleven robbery, or do you know? Answer. There was, yes sir. I think, hold on just a moment. Yes, Sergeant Greider forwarded a supplement to Sergeant Carey, who forwarded it to me through our computers of a Christopher Dwight Ramey. Question. Okay, and was Mr. Ramey, Christopher Dwight Ramey, excluded? Answer, yes, sir. Question, and why was Mr. Christopher Ramey excluded? Answer, because his ears stuck out too much. Now, before I move on to the story with the photo lineups, it's important to point out that during Ortiz's cross-examination, he was really called on the carpet about this ear thing. He was shown several photos and the video of the robber at the 7-Eleven and asked, can you see the ears in any of these photos or videos? And his answer on every occasion is no. So I'll leave it for all of you to decide, how do you rule someone out because their ears stick out too much when you can't even see the suspect's ears in the video that you're working off of? And furthermore, I'll ask the question that we are all asking ourselves right now. If a different shaped ear is enough to rule someone out, how do you get past the fact that the man in the videotape appears to be under 5 foot 7 inches tall, and every single witness identified the suspect as being under 5 foot 8 inches tall, and you have your only viable suspect being a man who is 6 foot 3? The answer to that question is Melissa Keene. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Melissa Keene, you'll remember, was the clerk at the fifth and final robbery, the 7-Eleven store in Killeen. As a reminder, this is what she wrote in her handwritten statement on the night of the robbery. Quote, He looked like he was in his early 30s, maybe around 28 or 29, really slim, around 5 foot 6. After the Crime Stoppers tip, Detective Ortiz visited Melissa Keene and asked her if she could identify anyone in that photo lineup. Now, Melissa Keene says that she wasn't influenced in any way, and we don't know what happened. But what we do know is that she was shown the photos, and she was also played an audio recording. At trial, she testified that she didn't know if it was the recording from the actual robbery, or if it was from a different robbery, or if it was from George Powell himself. But she says that Detective Ortiz played a tape of a man saying, give me all your money, and she identified the voice as the man that robbed her, and then identified the photo of George Powell out of the photo lineup. So this is the beginning of the answer to the question that we all asked at the beginning of this episode. How did someone who was six foot three get arrested and convicted of a robbery when the witnesses say that the robber was about five foot six inches tall? Well, this is how. A Crime Stoppers tip from a woman who saw a 15-second video on the television one time where the assailant's face is never visible and identifies it as being Mr. George Powell. Then the lead detective goes back to the witness who had wrote again in her own handwriting that the assailant was 5'6 and manages to walk away with her identifying a 6'3 assailant. Now, even though there are now two witnesses identifying Powell, the prosecution still has a bit of a problem going into the trial. They know that Melissa Keene is going to be faced with her handwritten statement on cross-examination, and she's going to have to explain to a jury of 12 why she changed her subject description from being 5'6 to 6'3. And she did explain this at trial, and apparently the jury did buy it. But let's see what you think. While her handwritten statement says that the assailant was 5'6", prior to writing that down in the police report written by the police officer, it says that she described the person as being 5'10 or 5'11". So why the discrepancy? Well, luckily, Melissa explains that at trial. She says that right after the robbery, the officer asked her how tall the assailant was, and she had told him that he was about 5'10 or 5'11". Then, about 30 minutes later... The officer gave her a sheet of paper and told her to sit down and write out in her own words what happened and describe the assailant. And she said that while she was writing that out, she thought back to what she had told the officer. She had told him that he was 5'10 or 5'11. This is her quote from trial. Quote, The reason why I changed it was because I'm pretty short. I'm 5'1 inches tall. And after I was reading the statement, I thought about everything. I was trying to remember as much as I could. And I was thinking, I'm pretty short. 
5'11 is a really big gap for me, and so 5'6 is still pretty tall for me. And I was figuring more or less it must have been somewhere around there because I'm only 5'1, and 5'6 is pretty tall for me, so... And that's it. She says 5'10 or 5'11. She thinks about it and says, well, that's way too much of a gap. So he must be 5'6 because 5'6 is still 5 inches taller than her, which she would consider to be tall. But from the way she testifies, it sounds like she thought 5'10 or 5'11 was still way too high. Now, it's also important to point out, and something that George mentioned to me on the phone, is the fact that we don't know that Melissa Keene actually, to this day, has any idea how tall George Powell actually is. She saw him in a photo lineup, just his face, and she saw him at trial, sitting behind a table. So when you go back through and read that testimony, and just before this, she had pointed George Powell out sitting at the defense table, and then she follows that up with that very strange explanation as to the change in the size of the suspect that she described. Personally, I think, after reading it several times, and this testimony will be posted on the website, that Melissa Keene was confused. When she was asked, why did you change the size of the suspect in your description, she thought that they were asking why she went from 5'11 to 5'6. I don't think she had any idea that the man sitting behind that table was a full nine inches taller than that. While still on the stand, Melissa Keene was asked how she could be so certain that the robber was George Powell. After all, it wasn't in there very long. He was wearing a ball cap that was curled down on the edges and a big pair of sunglasses. Her response is this, quote, Yes, I remember his cheekbones because of the big sunglasses he wore. It was a dead giveaway because I'm a drawer and I draw. So those cheekbones, the nose, the shape of his face... The lips and everything. So I was trying to remember as much as I could. That way, if they caught him, that I would be able to positively identify him. End quote. So luckily for the prosecution, Melissa Keene is a drawer. And she knows to identify things like cheekbones, nose, the shape of a person's face, and their lips. But there's just one problem with that. And again, as I said in the Friday follow-up, I'd encourage all of you to go to our YouTube channel at Truth and Justice Podcast and look at the videos of the 7-Eleven robbery. In one of the videos, you get a clear view of this cashier, Melissa Keene. Take a stopwatch and watch that video and count the amount of time she's actually looking at the robber's face. I've done this several times, and the best, most conservative estimate that I can come up with is that she was actually looking into the robber's face for a maximum of four and a half seconds, spread out over about seven glances. She even testified that she hadn't looked at the robber before he came up to the counter, and she wasn't even looking at him when he asked her to give her all the money. She says that he hadn't pulled the gun out yet, but in fact he had the gun in his hand as soon as he walked up to the counter, but she was looking the other direction. Then, some of that four and a half seconds that I'm giving her credit for seeing his face is the first two seconds when the robbery begins. During those two seconds, her face is in the direction of the robber, but she's also describing the gun at that point. So for at least some of that time, she wasn't looking at his face, she was looking at the gun. So, to rewind her testimony, she was shown a photo lineup 
picked George Powell out, having no idea how tall he was, based on her eyewitness account of a robbery that happened months before with a man wearing a white ball cap curled down around his face and large black sunglasses, whose face she saw as covered up as it was, for a maximum of four and a half seconds. I'm sure you're catching the drift that I don't believe Melissa Keene's testimony at all. And I don't. But I do want to point out that I don't think Melissa Keene was intentionally lying. I don't think she was doing anything vindictive. I believe that she believes that she helped bring the robber to justice. I think that she was manipulated by Detective Carl Ortiz and probably further manipulated by the district attorney. And this is where the first step of the crowdsourcing element of the truth and justice movement could have a very real effect on George Powell's life. If anyone listening to this is from the Colleen or Copperas Cove area, or knows someone that is, start putting feelers out, either through phone calls with friends or social media, see if we can't track down Melissa Keene. Because I have a hunch who we're going to find is a very sharp, kind woman who has no idea that the man she sent to prison was nearly a foot taller than the person she described in her report. Another lingering question that I think most of us have had since the beginning of this case was that the same man was caught on video robbing five different convenience stores. George Powell was convicted of one of those robberies. Why was he never tried and charged with the other four? And the answer is... Well, they only had one Melissa Keene. You see, Detective Ortiz took the photo lineup to all five convenience stores. At robbery number one, the Texaco in Copperas Cove, the victims could not identify anyone from the photo lineup. Then Ortiz's case takes the biggest blow of all when he visits the clerks from robbery number two. That was the Valero station on May 28th in Killeen. When Ortiz took the photo lineup to the Valero gas station, they did, in fact, make an ID. They pointed right to George Powell's face. And when they pointed to his face, they said it definitely was not that guy. That's George. We know George. He's here all the time. I had expressed permission by their management and the clerks that I could be up there from time to time to promote my CD. It was right outside of Fort Hood, so the soldiers, when they come out of Fort Hood or go into Fort Hood, they stop by that store. I'm always at that, always in their parking lot, you know, making making money, you know, so to speak. And uh, you know, I didn't, they didn't, they didn't have a problem with me being there because I was very respectful to the customers. So they, that's how they knew me. You know, I'm I'm there every single day. I can make as much money there as I want to because of my CD. While the fact that the clerks at the first robbery were unable to identify anyone from the photo lineup was certainly a hit to Ortiz's case, it was nothing compared to the identification from the clerks at the Valero. How do you get past them saying we absolutely know that it was not him? Because we know him. Well, that didn't slow Ortiz down. He continued on to the third robbery where he didn't get an identification. But in the fourth robbery, he did. And that was at the Mickey's gas station in Colleen. It was at this store where the police report reads as follows. Quote, Both Miss Mitsuki and Mr. Westbrook described the suspect as a white male, possibly of Hispanic ethnicity, possibly five foot eight, slender build, 
with black short hair, dark sunglasses, and goatee. End quote. Now, after striking out at the first three robbery locations, Ortiz strikes his first pay dirt here at the Mickey's because both Mitsuki and Westbrook identified George Powell from the photo lineup. Now, again, just like Melissa Keene, we don't know if these two witnesses know how tall George Powell actually is. We don't know what was said when they were shown the photo lineup by Ortiz. We only know that they did identify him. However, after George was convicted of the 7-Eleven robbery, the charges from the Mickeys, where he was identified with another photo lineup, were dropped by the DA. George believes these charges were dropped because the DA knew that in another trial, George would know exactly how to defend himself. Because even though at the 7-Eleven trial, the state has Crime Stopper tipster Elsie Schultz's testimony and eyewitness testimony from Melissa Keene, they still have a big problem. The jurors all saw the photos and the videos of the seemingly 5'6 to 5'7 man fleeing the gas station after the robbery. And they were looking right across the room at a 6'3 defendant. In order to convince that jury to convict, the state would have to reconcile Melissa Keene and Elsie Schultz's testimony with the video of the 5'6 to 5'7 robber. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. After Elsie Schultz's testimony and then Melissa Keene's, the state was in great shape, but they still needed to bridge the gap between the short man in the video and the very tall man sitting across from the jury. In order to do that, the state brought in an expert witness from Jacksonville, Florida. The witness was a detective with the Jacksonville Police Department. He worked in the Traffic Homicide Unit. Although working for the police department was not his only source of income, the reason he flew to Texas for this case is because he also had a side business doing consulting work reconstructing crime scenes. He was first put on the stand in front of the judge without the jury present to withstand direct and cross-examination so the judge could decide if his testimony would be allowed. Although after reading the testimony and the judge's decision, I don't know why they even wasted their time on this voir dire examination. The expert was asked about his education, and he explained to both attorneys and the judge that he was almost an engineer. This is a quote from the trial transcript. Question. You also mentioned it is used in engineering. And tell the court what your education is. Answer. I have actually completed all the coursework for a Bachelor of Science degree in mechanical engineering. Right now, I have to complete my foreign language in order to actually graduate. But I have done all of the engineering coursework. End quote. So, like I said, 
almost an engineer. He goes on to explain to both lawyers and the judge that he has used photographs and what he calls photogrammetry in many crime scene reconstructions, although he does go on to admit that he has never used photogrammetry to measure the height of a person or thing in a photograph. This would be his first time. Nonetheless, the judge determined that this expert is, in fact, an expert. Michael Knox is his name. He's out of Florida. Part-time sheriff's deputy. Mm-hmm. He didn't figure anything out. He, he figured out how to manipulate the program to say that the person was no less than six foot one. Because anybody who knows how to use that program, it's been certified, knows how to outline the individual in the video. Michael Knox testified that he used a program called Photo Modular to determine the height of the robber in the video. From what I'm told by George and his attorneys, Knox put on a great show for the jury. He had very sophisticated animations and visual aids for the jury to understand how he came to the conclusion that the man in the video, although the still photo of him leaving the convenience store shows him to be 5'7", is in actuality no less than six foot one and one eighth of an inch tall. His testimony was rather short and to the point. He explained to the jury how he used mathematical equations in this miracle software to be certain that it is impossible for the robber to have been anything less than six foot one. Now, in cross examination, Knox was called on the carpet by the defense asking if he had ever actually been into the convenience store and measured anything in order to input that data into this software. And Knox explains that yes, the night before the trial, he did go to the 7-Eleven and take a measurement. A measurement. Of only the door. He was asked when he originally put the data into the software if he had any measurements whatsoever, and he said that he did not. Then he was asked if he knew the height of say, the countertop? His answer was no. Did he know the height of the camera? No, he did not. Did he know how far the camera was away from the door? No, he did not. Did he know the angle of the camera from the door? No, he did not. Did he know how wide the countertop was? No, he did not. The size of the shelves? No. You're getting the point. I could do this all day. He input, quote, data into this software, but when asked what that data was, at this point, I still have no idea. All we know is that the day before the trial, long after he'd already written out his opinion, he finally went and measured the height of the door, but nothing else. Nonetheless, things were not looking good for George Powell. The jury had now heard two eyewitnesses identify him as the robber in the video. They did hear some conflicting information, given that Melissa Keene had described the robber as 5'6", but that was all cleared up by Knox's horse and pony show with his fancy software and visual aid presentations. But all of that wasn't quite enough for the prosecution. They had built their Sunday, and now it was time to put the cherry on top for the jury. final nail in the coffin of the prosecution's case came from a man that we will only be identifying in this show as Mr. Smith. 
The reason for that is that this particular individual is still in prison. We have learned that word of this podcast definitely gets around the country, and we don't want to put him in danger by putting his name out on the podcast. So from here on out, Mr. Smith is our jailhouse snitch. Mr. Smith was in the same tank as George for a couple of months while he was awaiting trial. He was a man that George Powell actually considered a friend. How I knew Smith was he was one of my cellmates. And his cell was right across from my cell. We're in an eight-man tank. This individual wasn't very well liked in our cell block. And the other guys in the cell block wanted to beat him up all the time. He wasn't very hygienic and he was rude and was kind of off. So I, uh, I, you know, I read my Bible. You know, I believe, I believe in God. I felt like I had a uh, obligation to protect him. And I used to keep people off of him and I used to bring him into my cell and I, we'd pray, you know, pray for whatever, you know, whatever needed to be done, needed to be said, you know. So I didn't have any suspicion of him and I didn't, you know, I would never thought in a million years he would sneak into my cell and get my, my, uh, paperwork that my lawyers had given me about the, from the, you know, the police reports and the detective's case summary report and everything. I never imagined he would do that. Mm-hmm. That's what he did. That's how we got the facts and everything that he got. How, whatever he said to the district attorney's office to convince them that he, I confessed I committed these robberies to him. That's how he convinced the district attorney that he would be a credible witness for them. So he would get leniency on what he was facing. So his testimony then at trial was that you would confide it in him and you had confessed to what, all five robberies? Well, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I think he just said, I just confessed that I committed some robberies. I don't think he said all five robberies. I think he just meant the one that we went to trial for. Did you and your lawyers know that Smith was going to testify against you at trial? Well, my lawyer gave me a witness list, and I looked at all these names on the witness list, and I'm trying to figure out who they are. And I seen his name, but I didn't know I didn't I didn't really know his name in the cell block, so I didn't couldn't put the name to the face. So I didn't know. I know my lawyer told me that yeah, there's somebody that says you confessed that you committed these robberies and this and that, and I was like, nah just didn't seem realistic to me because I never did. Mr. Smith's testimony was pretty short and sweet. He got on the stand and under oath told the jury that George Powell was showing him photos from the case and that he had pointed to the photos from the surveillance videos and said, that's me in that picture, but in the picture, I look short, so the jury will never buy that that's me. He says that George Powell told him that on a couple of occasions and that he had essentially confessed to all the robberies. Now, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the state didn't have any strong element to their case. They needed all four pieces to work together in order to obtain a conviction that, after the fact, no one could believe happened. But as weak as the case seemed, there it was. Crime Stopper's tip, a changing statement and eyewitness identification, a supposed photogrammetry expert to reconcile the photo lineup with the previous witness statements, and a jailhouse snitch to top it all off. At the end of the day, George Powell was convicted of armed robbery and sentenced to 28 years in prison. As of right now, he's been incarcerated for about nine years.
while the state walked away with their head held high, closing the case and getting their conviction, and writing off the other four robberies, their case was beginning to crumble before their eyes. It all started in April of 2016, when the jailhouse snitch, Mr. Smith, out of the blue, with no prompting, sent a letter to the current district attorney in Bell County, Texas, telling him that he had lied on the stand. Next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. A big thank you to Tate Krupa, who designed and created our logo. And thank you to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com for creating, managing, and maintaining our website. Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell for transcribing the episodes every week. And thank you to Desiree Dunn for printing them and mailing them off. And as always, I want to thank all of you for all of your engagement and support. Don't forget, if you happen to know or know someone who does know Melissa Keene out of Killeen, Texas, please ask her to send us an email to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. She can also call the show's tip line, which is 269-224-2833. And for the rest of you, you can stay in touch through our email, you can like our Facebook page, or you can join in on the discussion on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.